Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your regular instalment from North Wales where I bring you tales of the macabre, the unfamiliar, and often seemingly unreal tales of true crime that I scour the UK and Ireland to bring to you. Doing this is myself, Paul, the creator, host, and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved world's smallest cow, Pixie, is here with me as always, and we are completed by you folks, the wonderful listeners that make the show worthwhile and keep it moving forward. So, It's amazing as it always is having you join us today, which means the world and I thank you for, and I do hope that as the episode finds you, then it finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. I'd like to jump in right here from the off and remind you folks that on the back of our sold out dates in Glasgow and London, myself, Mike from Murder Mile and Adam from the UK True Crime Podcast will next be visiting Manchester on October the 4th where once again we will be looking at how to plan the perfect murder and totally balls it up. We have had so much fun doing these shows, they've been fabulous to do, and the feedback from you guys that have attended has been amazing, so we look forward to seeing some of you folks in Manchester for the latest instalment, can promise laughs, can promise horror, all sorts, it's going to be fabulous. There's a link in the episode show notes where you can get yourself tickets from, it will be an absolute blast as I've just said, and we can't wait to see you there. A big hello and thanks also to both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time going out to new friends Emma Braithwaite, Keith Dunn, Thea Atwater and John Langlands, plus Danny S. King and Derek Keir, who have opted to annually support the show. Thank you so much all, it really does mean the world to me that you have. It is so kind of you to do in these times, and you each rule, you really do. Now you too... And I mean, that's you folks, not the Irish band who I've never particularly liked and who I think's best days are long behind them now. You too can support the enthusiast yourselves for less than the cost of a pint a month or a bit more if perhaps you want a bit of show stuff or perhaps you're merely content with a full series of unreleased bonus tales that being a supporter gets you. I'm talking crazy stories such as Angel from Hell or The Rotten Rose of Devon to the bizarreness of episodes such as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell or Send in the Clowns, right through to the pure horror of Suffer the Little Children or The Lost Girls of Liverpool, to name just some that are on offer. You can be a show supporter quicker than Salman Rushdie has now ordered himself a stab-proof vest, and easier than coming to the conclusion that the masked singer or the masked dancer, choose your poison whatever, is absolute and utter bollocks. It works for either, really, doesn't it? Just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there, always remembering to add that podcast suffix, or you might not find it, but it's got the same show logo and everything, so you should be okay, no problem. Or you can just use the link that is ever-present in the episode show notes, and it will take you right to it. So then, The series arc is upon us. Now, ever since I started The Enthusiast, this has been an overall tale that at some point I always knew, always wanted, would feature. But being honest, when I began the show five years ago, at the time I wouldn't have known even how best to cover such a tale. With such a back catalogue now, I'm that much more comfortable with writing. 
and so it's time to tackle this one. Now, as I've done in previous series with the South Wales Slayer or Maniac, or of course, Thriller, there are some tales that you just can't tell in one or two, however many parts you may project. Sometimes they just need to run until they're done, until I'm satisfied it's the best that I can possibly do. So I'm unsure exactly how many episodes we're talking about here, but expect it to run for a few. Jess Carter from the Outlines podcast has been outstanding in assisting with the research for this arc, and will also feature in a collaborative episode to do with the tale sometime through it as well. Those featured within the arc, and I expressly mean the victims and their families, plus the investigating team there, I write the entire arc with them in mind. Whereas I would never normally shy away from details, this is one tale that in several aspects I will do so for several events mentioned have no need to be expressed graphically, I'm very sure that the horror will be apparent enough. The tale will cover several years, will involve several people, and is an overall tale that will sadden, infuriate, and more than anything, will sicken you. There will also be several names that you'll never forget. It's one that I've danced around telling, I've not looked forward to covering it at all, but one that I felt an incredibly important one to tell, and so to try and get right. Those involved and affected by it, the majority of those involved anyway, deserve nothing less. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury, descriptions of a sexual nature, and involving sexual crimes against children, that some listeners may find extremely disturbing and or distressing so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts for the opening part of this series arc, which I've entitled The Lost Boys, and which begins with an episode I've called The Boy Who Loved Coins. It was November the 30th, 1985, a bitterly cold yet crisp Saturday morning with frost on the ground. And at around 10am, farmer Terry Wilson was out, shotgun broken over his arm, after a brace of pheasants to donate to his son's school bazaar. Terry was the estate manager of Lawns Farm in Stapleford Tawney near Ongar in Essex, a short distance from the junction of the M25 and M11 motorways, and very close to the farm property adjacent to a road of the same title, Shonks Mill Road a shortcut used by motorists on the A113 to Brentwood, is Shonksmill Spinney, a two-acre stretch of wild woodland which had been left deliberately uncultivated to attract wildlife and game birds. Though the spinney was usually good pheasant territory, shooting was slow early that morning, and so Terry had headed over to a part of the woods that he never usually frequented as it had become too heavily overgrown poking at the thickets and undergrowth in the hope of disturbing the game that he was there for. He'd just begun beating again at a massive overgrown thicket of brambles he'd found his way blocked by, when, through a barely discernible clearing in the scrub, he spotted something out of place, something that juxtaposed against the brambles and autumnal foliage that lay fallen. Something pink. Thinking at first he was looking at a pig, and wondering for a split second what on earth a pig was doing there. Terry's puzzlement turned to horror 
and the adrenaline kicked instantly in, making him involuntary recoil, because he realised this was no pig. Terry was looking at part of a human body. Making his way back to the farmhouse at a brisk pace to contact police, only minutes later, Terry burst through the door of Lorne's farm, breathlessly telling his boss, Christine Browning, Christ, there's a bloody body down there by the spinney. Within 30 minutes of the shocked telephone call being made to Essex Police, for the location of the body was five miles north of the Metropolitan Police District, and so fell under the Essex Constabulary's remit, the area was sealed off by police, and Senior Officer Detective Chief Inspector Derek Cass was en route to the scene. As a brief tangent and a point of interest, Detective Chief Inspector Cass was one of the officers involved five years before this in the madman tale that made up that segment of the previous episode of The Enthusiast, The Gasman and the Madman. And as soon as he was at the scene, which was just a 10 minute drive away from his home, the slow process began of scene of crime officers documenting and recording the scene precisely, stage by stage as the body was excavated and removed from the scrub. Because of the dense foliage that the body had been concealed in, a biologist from the Home Office Forensic Laboratory at Huntington in Cambridgeshire was also requested to attend the scene. Once this was all in place then, as a pathway to access the body was cut through the foliage, the vegetation was carefully bagged for examination, with as little of the surrounding undergrowth as possible being disturbed, and eventually, officers could see that Terry had indeed found a human body concealed underneath a shallow carpet of leaves and twigs. The body, which when it was uncovered was found to be caked in leaf mould, showed to be that of a dark-haired young boy, thought to be no older than in his mid-teens. He was lying curled up naked in a fetal position, his head turned upwards, and it was noticeable that two of his front teeth were missing. He'd been dead for perhaps a week, certainly no longer than that, for although it was cold, decomposition had barely begun. A noticeable aspect visible to the body even before post-mortem was that the hands and feet of the boy displayed what can be called washerwoman's effect the wrinkling of the skin to the hands and feet that comes from prolonged immersion in water. Due to the remoteness and inaccessibility of the location of where the body was found, it was theorised that it would have to have taken two persons to move the body to it, and a vehicle would have had to be used to transport it there. It was also thought that in the haste to dump the body, a grave had not been dug because the earth was at the time frozen the ground being too hard to do so. He'd instead been rolled underneath the bush and hidden. Or, perhaps his killer, or killers, simply couldn't be bothered to even try. They just wanted rid. How terribly sad is that? It was impossible to determine a cause of death there at the scene, and a fingertip search of the area around the bush revealed nothing of significance including not a stitch of the boy's clothing. Whoever he was, he'd been dumped there as naked as the day he was born. Police opened an incident room five miles away from the scene in Chipping Onger, but it was to be evening and darkness having fallen before the body was removed for post-mortem examination. 
to the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Harlow. Here, in a post-mortem conducted by Home Office pathologist Dr. Peter Venesis, somebody that we met last year on the show during the Thriller arc, cause of death was concluded quickly as being caused by asphyxia, most likely as a result of suffocation. He was also found to have bruising to the head, though where exactly this bruising was is unspecified, and cuts to his buttocks, thought to have been inflicted with a kitchen knife. As I mentioned before, there was also found wrinkling of the boy's hands and feet, giving the corpse the washerwoman's effect, as though he'd been submerged in water for a considerable period of time, at the very least a number of hours. The murder hunt now in full, the surrounding farmland and areas for a radius of some five miles out was scoured in an attempt to discover any discarded clothing that may have belonged to the youth whilst the few houses in the large expanse of farmland were visited as part of the standard house-to-house inquiries that are a staple part of any murder investigation. The investigation was at the time, and overall, the entire tale does contain several firsts, but the investigation was, at that time, the first time Essex Constabulary had utilised the then-fledgling Holmes Computer, standing for Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, which has got to be the best acronym ever, or what. And as a result, back then there were very few officers who were trained to use it, but tough, and is sometimes best to do, a senior officer told the 50 detectives involved in the investigation they would simply have to learn on the job. The first action undertaken, the most logical one also, was a trawl through missing person reports from the Essex Force area to see if anyone matching the description of the victim had been reported missing within the last few weeks. But when this drew a blank, following the results of the post-mortem, the details were passed on to Scotland Yard's Missing Persons Bureau and the search area was expanded outwards from the Essex area. By the morning, it had produced a very likely match. Hayley Nurcombe had walked into the front office of Hackney Police Station at 6.45pm on Saturday the 6th of July 1985 to report that her half-brother, 14-year-old Jason Swift, who had been living with her and her fiancé, Adam Riches, had gone missing. For almost a month, they'd had the troubled boy staying with them, and out of his four siblings, it was his eldest sister Hayley who Jason was closest to. At their flat, number 28A Edwy House on Hackney's Kingsmead Estate, at the time a notorious crime-ridden hotbed of unsavoury characters. And though she and Adam had asked him if he wanted to come shopping with them that Saturday morning, Jason had declined, opting to stay there by himself. This was at 11.30. When they'd returned from shopping that Saturday afternoon, they returned to find Jason gone. He'd taken all of his belongings with him, his clothes, a few books, his treasured personalised Monopoly set and a small collection of foreign coins that he kept in a battered cigarette tin and had neglected to even ensure the flat door was shut behind him, it being left ajar. He'd also taken £75 of Hayley's savings from a glass on her dressing table. So, despite the fact that he'd only been missing for a few hours at that point, 
and the fact that it wasn't a massive sum of money in general at the time, though of course it would be to anyone personally. The boy was listed as a missing and wanted person, and his details circulated to oncoming parades. But he was never found. Perhaps he was never even really looked for. And now, the pitiful figure who'd had such an undignified final resting place in that Essex farmland perhaps had a name. On the 2nd of December 1985, Jason's half-brother, Stephen Nurcombe, was led into the morgue at Princess Alexandra Hospital and sadly identified the body as being that of his half-brother, Jason. Stephen's first inkling of his brother's fate had come over lunch the day before, when he read in the newspaper that the body of a boy had been found. He recalled, many years later, I kept reading and reading it. It described what the boy looked like and the fact he had two teeth missing. I rang the police and said it could be my brother, so they took me to identify him. His face was all shades of blue, black, red and purple. It was as if he'd been beaten up, but really, it was signs of decomposition. There is no way that my mum or my sister could have borne to identify him. When I told my mum, she kept saying, it can't be him, it can't be. But it was. I still get pictures in my mind of his face like that. I couldn't believe it when the police told me what had happened to him. I didn't know human beings did things like that. It was the first time since he disappeared, almost five months earlier, that the fate of Jason had become anything like a matter of urgency. But in his death, Jason was to get the attention, care and compassion he had been so sadly lacking in his life. Jason's sister Haley, meanwhile, told the local press following identification of her brother's body, We want the person who did this to Jason to be found, and anybody who can help the police to do it now. Jason was a quiet lad who was young for his age, and he came to stay with me because he was confused and wanted to sort himself out. He never gave us any warning that he was leaving. When he disappeared from home on the first occasion, he told us he wanted to see the big wide world. But I cannot imagine him being able to cope or survive on his own, and someone must have been looking after him. Jason's elder brother, 16-year-old Robert Nurcombe, meanwhile, told the papers, Anybody who knows anything should tell the police straight away. Jason was a good kid, and we still don't know what happened to him. The police are coming round later today to tell us what happened. Now, once police had told the family, which must have been unimaginable for them to hear, Jason's shattered mother, Joan, said, The man who did this to my son must be sick. He must be caught before he does this to another child, and another mother has to go through this. What no one could know at that time was that the name Jason Swift would become synonymous, his tragic picture forever associated with individuals who have in some circles, quite rightly and justly, been referred to as the most evil men that Britain has ever produced. One of them, the most notorious of them I would dare say, has even been called the most evil person still living and breathing in the UK today. I shall let you make up your mind there. 
as the arc progresses. Jason Colin Peter Swift was born on the 1st of March 1971 in Nuneaton in Warwickshire, the eldest son born to Joan Nurcombe and Sidney Swift, although he was Joan's fourth child, for Joan had been married previously and had two sons and a daughter from that marriage. The family lived in a Second World War prefab in Stockingford, near to Nuneaton, but because Sydney didn't work and the only source of income for the family was from social security, with then four children to support and a heavily pregnant Joan expecting a fifth imminently, by April 1972 the family were unable to even afford the rent on the prefab and were forced to move in with friends. That June, Joan gave birth to a fifth child, Brian, before a week later, he and his other four siblings were taken into care by Warwickshire County Council. Though Sydney and Joan had attempted to provide a stronger and more stable family unit for the children, marrying on the 13th of January 1973, that wrench in 1972 was to be the first of a number of spells in the care system for the children over and lasting years. And although the family had returned to their native London in 1977, following them living at Blackertree Place in Stockingford, and they'd been reunited, almost immediately they were split up again, the four youngest being sent to a Dr. Bernardo's home in Tunbridge Wells in Kent, while Sydney, Joan, and Joan's eldest son, Stephen, were allocated a council flat on the Woodbury Down Estate in Stoke Newington. Here, Joan would visit the children every other weekend, and although the other children, Robert, Haley, and Brian, were each to return home over the next few years, Jason was to be the last one of them back, ostensibly enjoying the schooling that Bernardo's offered so much that he wanted to stay until the end of that school year, and so not returning home until the 27th of July 1981. Indeed, Photographs available of Jason over this period of him being at the children's home show the boy to look happy and adjusted to this. However, with the family dynamic all back together, the financial and spatial strain set in, the rows at home began, then increased and intensified, and finally, Sidney Swift left the home for good in October of that year, only periodically returning for brief visits to see the children. Jason seemed to be somewhat different from his brothers, who teased and bullied him quite a great deal, and led him to seek refuge and confide in his elder sister Haley, whom he became very close to. She'd almost been a matriarchal figure to the children when they lived at the home. The teasing was due to his quiet and timid nature, as well as his considerate side and his perceived effeminacy by his brothers. It's how kids can be, isn't it? and because he didn't show the same outdoor interests as his brothers. Whereas they were outgoing and jingoistic, Jason would be more happy indoors reading, particularly Enid Blyton's Famous Five or Secret Seven series, or listening to records favouring artists such as the Bee Gees or the Pointer Sisters, him particularly loving the song Slow Hand. This constant teasing intensified due to his shyness and his ability to blush easily, for reportedly, if he even caught a glimpse of naked flesh during a love scene on television, he would furiously shield his eyes to try and avoid the reddening that would inevitably come 
ergo the teasing. Despite the family tensions that there were, and although the picture I may have just tried to paint out there may seem as though Jason was relentlessly bullied and he wasn't loved at home, I'll refute that right now because he certainly was loved. I'm sure all siblings tease each other like that at a certain age. So despite the family tensions, Jason was remembered as a considerate brother who would always remember and mark his family's birthdays with cards and small gifts, who got excited for and saw as a real treat shopping for Christmas presents for everyone, and who would mark each Mother's Day with breakfast in bed for Joan, cup of tea and some burnt toast, and would often prepare basic but nonetheless thoughtful meals for the family. Now, many accounts paint Jason as being educationally subnormal, and though he was polite and able, especially showing an interest for world geography and languages, Jason nevertheless attended a school which indeed catered for children with mild learning difficulties, the Horizon School on Wandsworth Road in Stoke Newington. Here, the then headteacher Clarence McKenzie described Jason, years later, as a loving, innocent little boy who was in need of love and affection and help, who perceived certain people as friends and helpers, and suffered for it. Though Jason reportedly had trouble reasoning and understanding everyday situations, he did relatively well at the Horizon School, and his attendance record was generally good, but he was considered immature and somewhat of a loner, with very few friends. The haunting school photograph that has come to familiarise Jason perhaps examples this better than anything. In the class photograph that the image is taken from, which is available on the show's Instagram page, Jason is seen sitting on the edge of the front row. He has his hands together, his legs slightly apart, and sat a little towards the edge of his chair, shown leaning as far away as possible from the girl who was sat beside him giving the impression that he was slightly apart from his classmates, who were each shown bunched much closer together. He was remembered by staff as a quiet and withdrawn boy, one terrified of going into the showers with the other boys after games lessons, and would more often than not abscond from school completely rather than take part. This isn't for a dislike of cleanliness whatsoever, on the contrary, Jason would lie in the bath at home so often and for so long that his mother would call through the bathroom door to make sure that he hadn't fallen asleep in there. Once asked at the school by an educational psychologist to name whatever three wishes he could have come true, whatever he wanted, Jason said simply, Money, a house, and food. The simple wishes of someone who knew what it had been like to be without all of those at some point. Jason's greatest fantasy, however, was seeing the world, and to assist with this, he began to collect foreign coins whenever he could, spending his evenings at home poring over them and indulging in this fantasy. He was a frequent visitor to the coin and stamp shops in London's Charing Cross, specifically a coin collector's shop in Villiers Street in London's West End where the owner, Philip Cohen, remember Jason well, so often was he in there. Philip Cohen recalled later. He was a bright lad, very polite, and single-minded about his currency. I got the impression he liked to fantasise about visiting the countries and having the right change in his pocket to use should he needed to. 
On one occasion, I spotted him rummaging around in what I called the rubbish box. And when I asked him what he was looking for, he said he wanted French coins because his mum was taking him to France on holiday. I laughed at his innocence and told him that I would change his money for him at the official rate. Jason's mother for many years displayed on the mantelpiece at home a mounted collection of foreign coins that Jason had made for her, and this fantasy of getting away and travelling the world was one that burned bright in Jason. From 1982 onwards, when on bonfire night that year, the then 11-year-old Jason was discovered by police wandering around Heathrow Airport by himself, perhaps again adding more colour and enriching this travelling fantasy and was returned to the family home, it signalled the beginning of Jason vanishing from home more frequently, as much to escape the overcrowding and the incessant arguing. He was often brought home by police officers, where he would contact his family to ask them to fetch him from wherever he'd been picked up. Perhaps not long after this, Jason had found a possible way to make his travels come quicker, for to some, including his school friends, and especially his sister Haley, suspicions now grew that Jason was mixing with the wrong crowd and was falling into bad company, associating with a group of older men and perhaps even being somewhat corrupted in an unsavoury way. These fears were virtually confirmed to the family in June 1984 when Jason made a formal complaint to police that he'd been sexually assaulted by a well-to-do film editor at a Hampstead address. This led to the man's arrest and questioning, though Jason was to later withdraw the complaint without offering a clear reason as to why he had. Around this time, Jason was also spotted as a regular traveller on the number 253 bus which runs right past the family flat along the Seven Sisters Road. When he had begun attending the Horizon School, Jason had been given a free Red Bus Rover travel card to get the bus to school. But as this allowed Jason to travel anywhere in the capital, he frequently used it to bunk off school, visiting coin or stamp shops, exploring London, and then coming home and pretending he'd been to school. On the 253's route from Finsbury Park to Aldgate, the bus stopped outside public toilets at both Manor House and Clapton Ponds, both locations which at the time were known cottages, where the introverted, described as slightly effeminate Jason met with several men. As his family described, he would do virtually anything for money, and so it seems he became easy prey for men who found sexual gratification with young boys. Sadly, unthinkably, perhaps even seeing it in some misguided way, as the care and the kindness that he so desperately craved. By the summer of 1985, Life at home was increasingly intolerable for Jason, and one evening in late May or early June of that year, after saying that he was just nipping out to the shops for a pint of milk, Jason disappeared for four days. He was reported missing by his mother, and was eventually traced to a South London shelter for homeless and runaway children, run by Alone in London. His sister Haley collected him from here, and Jason told his mother that he felt confused in himself and accepted the offer of Haley for him to go and live with her and her fiancé Adam for a time, saying to his mother that he needed to sort himself out. So, 
at the beginning of that June, Jason indeed went to live with his half-sibling and her fiancé at their flat at number 28A Edwy House on Hackney's Kingsmid Estate, some four miles away. Within a few days of him being there, he'd settled down, appeared more contented, and had even gone back to school. And on the surface, he was contented. Haley recalls. He still had his dreams. I found a passport application in one of his pockets that he'd begun to fill out. When I asked him about it, he said he'd done it for the sake of it. He had a list of food prices and hostels in France as well. When I asked him about these, he said he was just messing about with it all. Was this Jason enriching this fantasy about travelling somewhat even more? Or was he actually planning to leave and make his way there? Too much of a free spirit to really settle? Perhaps almost wanting to leave an old, unhappy life behind that he felt he didn't fit into? His half-brother Stephen recalled years later. Jason was the kind who enjoyed his own company and loved collecting things like coins and stamps. He wasn't into the same things as Robert, Brian and I, like football or fast cars. But I wouldn't say he was a loner, he was just into his own things. Successful people often have one thing they're particularly into. That's how it was with Jason and his coins. Jason definitely had a goal, something he wanted to do with his life. Maybe, if he'd been allowed to live, he would be running his own specialist coin shop by now. Despite his desire to get away from the family home, however, whilst he was living with Haley and Adam, each day after he'd been to school, he called at his mother's house to visit her before returning to Hackney. Haley, though, was well aware of his underlying frustrations about his situation, particularly regarding money. In fact, more than one member of Jason's family has described him as being money orientated. His sister Haley recalled, he would do anything for money because he was desperate to get away. He used to offer to do neighbour shopping for them, but then pocket the cash. He also stopped random people in the street and asked them for money, saying that his mother was in hospital and he wanted to buy her flowers. So, with this in mind, if Jason had discovered a source of cash where his described effeminate manner and his youthful good looks, and pictures of Jason do show him to be a handsome boy, could earn him sums of money from a clientele of which there seemed to be a steady stream who would always pay cash, and who would be loath to report to police even if he'd pocketed more from them than agreed, then with this goal of getting away in mind, it sadly isn't a massive jump to suggest that he most likely did, is it? It seemed so. For one Saturday morning, the 6th of July 1985, Jason told Haley that he was very happy living there. It made her smile, and she told Adam so as they went out shopping that Saturday lunchtime, Jason having opted to stay behind at the flat, playing Monopoly by himself, one of his favourite pastimes. That smile was to be short-lived indeed, however, for neither Haley nor Adam, nor any of Jason's family, were ever to see him again. When Haley and Adam returned from shopping, Jason had gone. He'd packed all of his clothes, his famous five books, his coins, and his beloved Monopoly set, meagre possessions that they believed he'd put into two Tesco plastic carrier bags and had hurriedly left. In fact, 
the door to the flat had been left ajar. He had also, as I said earlier, taken £75 from a glass on Haley's dressing table. Within two weeks of him disappearing from their flat, Jason twice telephoned Haley and each time spoke to Adam, who didn't chastise the boy for the theft of the savings, but instead expressed concern for him and inquired as to his whereabouts and as to whether he was coming home. Not coming back, but using that word, home, to which Jason said he was considering doing so. He wouldn't give his exact location or the number that he was calling from, claiming it was somewhere in South London, where he was staying with a school friend and his father, an explanation that he'd used before. Jason had sounded nervous and hesitant during the call, and though he'd promised to telephone again the following night, he never did. Then, on the 22nd of July, his mother received a plain postcard from Jason, which read, Dear Mum, I'm okay, I'm working with the fair at South End, so don't worry, see you soon. In brackets, I'm going north soon. Jason Swift. The card had been postmarked in the south coast, possibly the Brighton area, but this promised upcoming visit never materialised. It was almost two months before any of his family had any kind of contact from Jason again, and this was once again to his mother when she received a birthday card from him on September the 11th. Although he wouldn't be there to celebrate with her, which would have undoubtedly been the best present she could have wished for, the conscientious boy didn't forget his mum's birthday and marked it as always with a card. Posted in Crawley in Sussex, the floral printed card contained a curiously formal message inside, which read, Dear Mum, I haven't forgot you, so don't worry about me. I'm alright. I will come and see you in the next few months. Happy birthday from Jason. Joan Swift, and it has to be said, she was later to come under flack for the stance that she took following these communications. For whilst Jason was a missing person, she was never to get onto the police and say, look, I've had a card from him postmarked here, can you get someone in that area to look? Instead, research texts claim that she considered the longer he was missing, the more she held to the maxim, no news is good news, and that searching for him was a pointless task, saying, you just don't know where to start, do you, in a place the size of London? I don't quite know if I would agree with that personally, feeling I'd have to do something, but I digress. In fact, it is reported that other members of Jason's family kind of shared this sentiment. Out of his remaining family, his absent dad and his four other siblings, it was only Haley who had even bothered to report him as missing, and who seemed to overly care. Now I can't say that with complete conviction, of course, but she was the only one who seemed to do anything about him being gone that we know of. She even consulted a clairvoyant to see if that may provide any information, although this was unsuccessful, and was left wondering and worried, but not yet giving up hope and accepting the worst. Almost three months to the day that Jason had walked out of her flat with his belongings, without him even fully shutting the door behind him, on the 5th of October 1985, Haley married Adam at St Paul's Church in Highbury in North London. Her mother, father and siblings were each there and at the reception at a nearby hall 
she kept a place reserved at the table specially for Jason, knowing his remembrance and feeling of sense of occasion, and hoping that he may just turn up for his sister's big day. Sadly, the chair stayed empty though. After his body was discovered almost two months later, some 16 miles away, police tried to fit together Jason's movements, yet leaving them with a highly incomplete jigsaw. It had been five months since he'd been seen by any of his family, although he'd stayed in touch periodically with his mother and had rung his sister twice, speaking to her fiancé, yet he was only estimated to have been dead for no more than a week when he was found. He'd looked healthy enough physically in the last few days of his life, and indeed was found to have food in his stomach contents, so it was thought likely that at least for the majority of the time he was missing, he was staying somewhere with someone. It was thought likely that once the £75 that he'd taken from Haley was spent, that Jason had earned a living through casual male prostitution probably passed from one man to another along a chain of contacts, rather than as being organised and having a pimp. Though police were quite confident that Jason would not have slept rough if he could ever have avoided doing so, there must have been a period of this interspersed during these five months, for though he was 14 years of age, Jason was still a frequent bedwetter, and due to his nature, described as having a devious streak it was thought that he would almost certainly have stolen money from his clients, so no one would have been inclined to keep him for a prolonged period. So, 12 days after his body was discovered, on the December the 12th edition of Crime Watch UK, a brief appeal was run on the programme's incident desk feature, appealing for any witnesses who could shed some light upon Jason's movements during the five months that he'd been missing. And one call in particular following this helped pinpoint his movements in the days immediately following him leaving Haley and Adam's flat. Doris Clark, a London viewer, contacted the studio to inform police that she owned two caravans at the Silver Sands campsite in Camber Sands in East Sussex, and that the previous summer she'd rented Jason a caravan on Monday, July the 8th. She was down at the site at the time, and vividly remembered a boy turning up, his clothes and few belongings packed into plastic carrier bags and in his navy blue orange lined parka jacket if you were a child in the 80s we all had one didn't we that she thought looked about 12 years of age due to his missing two front teeth and thinking it odd that such a boy would be staying in a caravan by himself when she asked him if a friend was going to stay with him he told her I had a friend once but he stole money from me so now I don't trust anybody. However, when she expressed her thoughts that he was young to be staying by himself, he told her that his parents were quite liberal and trusting of him and were quite happy for him to travel by himself. It's like an adventure, he told her, and that he was down there to visit someone in nearby Hastings. This explanation seemed quite acceptable to Doris, and so she rented him the caravan for two nights for £20 saying later that she took quite a shine to the boy. That afternoon, Jason went for a swim in the sea there, and the following day told Doris Clark that he'd walked to Rye a couple of miles away. He'd also visited the fish and chip shop on the site and was remembered there, as he'd not had quite enough money on him to pay for his meal 
though he told the assistant that he would bring the rest in later as a man was sending him some. On the Wednesday, the day Jason was due to leave, he was woken by Mrs. Clark and reminded that he would have to vacate and when she returned a short time later, he had indeed gone, but leaving the caravan in a mess and having taken the key with him. Around this time also, and the dates cannot exactly be specified, but Jason was sighted in London. As I've said, one of his greatest loves, perhaps even more so than his beloved Monopoly set, were foreign coins. He had a collection of them that he kept in his battered cigarette tin, and would often visit dealers at London's Charing Cross Collector's Centre to look through their cheap foreign currency there, the bits and bobs that they had. And in late June or early July, again, the dates cannot be ascertained, Jason once again came to the centre on Villiers Street with a load of some 300 assorted low-denomination coins, for which Philip Cohen paid him £5. Perhaps this was Jason's entire collection that he'd sold, for he was never seen again at the centre. Police then discovered that Jason had stayed with a gay man in London around the weekend of July 13th and 14th, because this man came forward to police and was eliminated from their inquiries, with no charges being raised against him for this. A teacher from Jason's school remembered seeing him getting onto a number 149 Stamford bus in North London on Monday the 15th of July, but after this, there was no other trace of him for more than a week. There was then the postcard Jason sent his mother, which had a South Coast postmark and was dated 22nd of July, in which he claimed to have been working with a fair and would soon be heading north. Police soon discovered this to be untrue. There were no confirmed sightings of him during the months of August, September or October. The birthday card received by his mother on September the 11th, curiously formal one that had been postmarked either Croydon or Crawley, was the sole trace of Jason throughout this period. Police did follow up several reports of sightings of him, but these turned out to be sightings of Brian, Jason's younger brother, who bore a strong family resemblance. Then, on November the 6th, a girl who knew Jason thought that she saw him on a number 253 bus in North East London. She was travelling from Manor House, but was unable to remember where Jason had gotten on. She was, however, certain that Jason was still on the bus when she got off it at May Street in Hackney, just a mile and a half from his sister's flat. Though it isn't reported as to whether the girl acknowledged Jason verbally and so could confirm this was him, or it was just someone with a strong resemblance, this sighting was the last that police could have complete confidence in. That was some three weeks before he died. So where had Jason been in all of that time? In May 1986, by which time Jason's death had been linked to another investigation under the operational title Operation Stranger. We shall come on to the other investigation in the next part. It was agreed to feature a reconstruction of his final known movements in the May 1986 edition of Crime Watch UK. The sightings of Jason I've described here were plotted together and a young actor who bore a strong resemblance to Jason, Simon Osborne, was found to participate. Several of the witnesses who had seen Jason agreed to participate in the film, including his family members, 
Philip Cohen and Doris Clark, and the reconstruction produced results even before it had aired. A Simon was at the Camber Sands campsite, walking about between takes in filming the segment there. A man approached the film crew and said that he'd seen a young boy resembling Simon the previous summer, in the company of an older man. As a result, police were able to obtain a description and pin down certain dates which until that point had been vague. When the reconstruction aired on the May 1986 edition, it produced hundreds of calls to the studio, two of which encouraged police in particular. One viewer rang in to say that Jason had stayed with him in Croydon in September of that year, but neglected to give any further details about this, but which would tie in with where the birthday card to his mother was thought to have been posted from that month, and a woman rang to say that on October the 23rd, in London's Victoria Coach Station, she had asked a young boy the way to Liverpool Street Station. She was now convinced this boy had been Jason. But ultimately, this, if it was Jason, was another mere sighting to put into those missing few months of his life. It would suggest he'd never left the south of England, perhaps indeed the capital, but it gave no clue as to where he'd been before and after, which police hoped could ultimately lead onto a breakthrough clue that may lead to his killer. The Essex team had begun its investigation into Jason's murder in a far different locale from their usual investigative pastures, starting from where Jason was living at the time of his murder and the last place he was seen, the Kingsmead estate, where several of the 5,000 bill posts that had been made up to appeal for information concerning Jason and distributed across the capital were still affixed. Now, whether or not it's still the same today, I don't know. It looks a markedly different place today, and as I've never been there, I can't say how it is. But back in the 1980s, the Kingsmead estate consisted of a collection of 16 blocks of houses built during the 1930s and 1940s, and which contained a thousand flats. It had a high crime and poverty rate back then, the type of place where the unsavoury would gather. Though as I've said before on the show, I'm in no way singling a particular area out here, for there are pockets of these places everywhere, aren't there? Officers covered every flat on the Kingsmead estate, and would certainly have called at number 36 Ashmead House, a filthy, unkempt flat just a hundred yards away from the block where Jason was living back that July, and somewhere they would be back to later in their inquiries, the explanation for which we shall get to in due course. But no one spoken to on that estate, at that time, admitted to knowing Jason, or even having ever seen him around there. Then, on New Year's Eve 1985, Stoke Newington Police received an anonymous telephone call in the early evening. The agitated caller, a male, told the officer taking the call, It's about young Jason. This is all I'm going to say. It wasn't meant to happen like that. I just want to say it shouldn't have happened like that. I want you to know it was an accident. I'm the man you were all looking for. My stomach has been churning since it happened, and I haven't been able to sleep a wink. When the officer suggested that the caller should come into the station to discuss it further, the caller refused and said, You know as well as I do that if I come in, 
then I won't be coming out again. By now, the focus of house-to-house -house inquiries was switched to the Woodbury Down Estate in Stoke Newington, where Jason's mother lived, in a hope that some breakthrough may arise from there, but nothing did. The murder squad knew by this time that Jason had scraped a living in the months he'd been missing as a casual sex worker, and so questioned the man that Jason had made a complaint about the previous year, who pointed police in the direction of London's West End. Here, officers discovered that out of the many youths who sold their bodies, very few of them were actually gay, most just doing so for the money, having been attracted by the bright lights of the big city, but learning just how unforgiving a place that it can be, leaving them hard up and on the streets, with it being a way to make money to survive out of desperation. They also learned that the younger the boys were, then the more that the boys could charge for sexual services. The boys, or chickens, as they were termed amongst the clientele, being well aware of this fact. Police made inquiries in the gay clubs and pubs, as well as amongst the homeless community, and a confidential telephone line was set up, which was soon inundated with calls from those who, although had a natural distrust of the police, as we've heard of from previous cases I've covered on the show that took place in the capital around the same time, they saw past this, so appalled were they by Jason's murder. Police in Leeds were also in January 1986 sent anonymously a tape recording of a man describing Jason's murder, in which the recorder claimed that the boy had been picked up by his killer at Barclay Brothers, a cafe at the time directly opposite the Houses of Parliament. For days after this tape was received, officers performed covert surveillance on the cafe, filming dozens of men and boys going in and out of there, but the surveillance was abandoned without result. The recorder of this tape was later traced and was found to be a hoaxer, and though there is little other information available about this line of inquiry, you have to hope that he was prosecuted to the full extent of the law, don't you? A despicable and vile individual. Now, Jason's body was still being held by police at the beginning of May 1986, and on the 7th of May, a second post-mortem, part of a double one, was conducted at the mortuary in Basildon, performed by Professor Austin Gresham, who was based at Adambrook's Hospital in Cambridge, an acknowledged expert in his field with a worldwide reputation. The findings did concur with Dr. Venetis' findings from November the 30th, which had found that Jason had been involved in homosexual activity, but suggested not for some time before his death. But this new post-mortem showed that Jason had been subjected to what was described as prolonged anal interference, most likely as a result of repeated buggery, at the time of his death. Further examination was to show that in the 24 hours prior to his death, he'd been violently assaulted with objects being inserted into him. Though police weren't at the time to know it, which included a broom handle, a vibrator, and even a knife. It had caused lacerating and misshaping to Jason to an extent that the seasoned pathologist had never before seen. There were also scratches found to the boy's buttocks that had been made by a sharp blade, and were consistent with being made during violent and sadistic homosexual activity. 
whilst a toxicology test on a tissue sample taken from the boy showed traces of three types of drug, diazepam, tamazepam and desmethyldiazepam, all present in his blood in large doses. The lethal combination had been used to incapacitate the boy, as well as a muscle relaxant to provide physical assistance to those who inflicted the horrific ordeal he had subsequently suffered. Professor Gresham said, following his examination, It's really quite extraordinary. I've seen similar injuries amongst consenting homosexual men after orgies, but I have never examined a corpse with injuries like that and I have certainly never seen them inflicted on a child before. You don't even want to begin to imagine it, do you? Poor, poor boy. Detective Chief Inspector Cassis's immediate reaction to these findings was one of fury. If the investigating team had been armed with a full fact of this from the start, they would have approached inquiries in an entirely different way, for instead of looking for a single man, whose passion for a young boy had gone too far and gotten out of hand, as had been considered because the evidence didn't suggest anything but that, now they would have been hunting what would turn out to be the most vicious gang of child sex killers this country has ever seen. The officers were still smarting about this on the 4th of July, when, almost a year after he was last seen by anybody who loved him, Jason Swift was laid to rest beneath a simple wooden cross in a corner of Manor Park Cemetery in East London. Officers from both Hackney and Essex joined the mourners, as well as children from the Horizon School who had turned up to say goodbye to Jason, the timid and shy loner. In March 2014, Jason's mother Joan sadly passed away and is buried with Jason. The inscription on the now in place white headstone with engraved cross a small grey inscription stone at the base of it, reading, In loving memory of Jason Swift, son, brother, passed away 30th of November 1985. Joan Walker, mum, passed away 31st of March 2014. Deep in our hearts and forever missed. A wooden and brass plaque inscribed at the front of the headstone, meanwhile, reads, Jason Colin Peter Swift, 1371 30 11 85. His life is a beautiful memory. In loving memory of Jason, gone but not forgotten. Love, Dad. His family still speak to Jason as they visit his and his mum's grave often. Now, Jason's was the second child's funeral that several of the officers present had attended within four days. But by that time, as I've said, the investigation into Jason's murder had long since been linked to another case. Another boy had been found dead the previous year, just five days after Jason's body had been found, and just six miles away from where his body was dumped. The circumstances of the boy's death, the way he was found, right down to the injuries he'd received and the position in which the body lay, plus the close distance to where Jason had been dumped, and other findings, left officers in no doubt that this was the work of the same killer, or killers. It had been this boy that made up the other body that was part of the double post-mortem undertook by Professor Gresham on the 7th of May, and once the crimes were officially linked, 
the investigations were intertwined to hunt for the vicious killer under the command name of Operation Stranger. And if any impetus were ever needed to catch those responsible, which of course it wasn't, but if it was, it was that the second boy was just six years of age when he died. Six. His story will come in the second part of The Lost Boys, however, because that is where I've decided to leave the tale for the time being. There is so much to this tale you wouldn't believe. As I said at the start, I'm sure also that it is a tale many of you do already know, and therefore, if you do, I'm sure you know just how important a story that it is to tell and to do justice to. It's a disturbing one to hear, I know it is. You should try researching and writing it. And I tell it in as depth as I do, not out of sensationalism or any kind of perverse glorification, but because as ever, I want you to appreciate the kind of horror that I have whilst researching the case. Ergo to ensure that Jason, and the other boys whose names you'll come to know throughout the tale, are that more firmly remembered. It is solely with them, and their families and loved ones in mind, that I do what I do, how I do it. And if it isn't a tale that you're familiar with, then I promise you, when it's done, it's one you will never forget. Ever. With that, I shall wrap up right here and put the finishing touches to the next part of The Lost Boys, which will be coming to you very soon. I thank you so very kindly for joining myself and the Mog today, which means as much as ever, and that all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.